Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. On Maundy Thursday, what we call Maundy Thursday, Jesus instituted a practice and a way of thinking that really would change the world. Inspired by the washing of the disciples' feet, an ethic of love was deeply ingrained into the very bones of those who would call Christ their Lord. It was assumed that service and respect towards one another must be showed if you claimed the name of Christ for yourself. It became eventually part of our way of life and our basic manners. It remains an offense to not obey the mandate given to us on Monday, Thursday, to love one another. It is still out of fashion, for example, to be rude or not to be generous, for example, if you have abundance. This basic truth and the example given to us by Christ himself during his own trial and passion has been sufficient motivation for generations. We have lifted up our love for one another as a supreme value. Even those who did not consider themselves Christian in any meaningful sense would agree that the culture that Christianity produced was a good one, one worth adhering to, one worth assuming. In the past hundred years or so, that ethic has been questioned or reworked or degraded or replaced. In the East, we saw dramatic and sweeping replacements in the form of Marxism, perhaps the most destructive economic or political system ever devised. Love was not the core guiding principle. Equality was, or is it equity? To destabilize the one pattern of human history, taught Marx, that is that the oppressed are oppressed by an oppressor, that was the goal of Marxism. People were pitted against one another in such a way that would have destroyed the Christian church if that had been at the outset its animating philosophy. The goal of Marxism may have been the virtue of everyone having the same amount of stuff and living in some kind of harmony, but the end result is that most people were poor, and unless you were well-connected, miserable. Political totalitarianism, of course, accompanied this economic theory, so, of course, there was no room for Christianity. The state was God, don't you know? And there was no room for the ethic of love in the bureaucracy. Christianity, in fact, was the problem because it had perpetuated that other ethic that didn't work very well for so long. But as good old Yankees, of course, we never had much room for Marxism. In fact, I, I guess we committed the opposite error of McCarthyism in the 50s, looking for any and all communists we could to expel them from our country. But you know, the Marxists didn't go away in the 50s. 
And worst of all, they were patient. At first, it was the oddball in our academic environment. You know, the one professor that everyone knew had a mug with Karl Marx on it or something. Then there was a few more. Then it seeped down into our public education system. In fact, our government has adopted many of the 10 Marxist planks, which, yes, were fully intended to uh, uh, take the place of our Ten Commandments. For example, we already have a graduated income tax, mandatory public schooling, inheritance taxes, and so many public services that they might as well be publicly owned. Slowly and steadily, the ranks of those who assumed the rights, the rightness of Marx, perhaps even in the name of Christian love, rose. Now, of course, very few people actually advocated for a red Soviet-style uh, Marxism in America. It's just that other greater goods have arisen to compete with our supreme value of love. And the greatest good for us to achieve is no longer love. It is equity, not equality, which says that we're all of the same value and worth, and we have the same human rights, civil rights, political rights, etc. But equity, which means that we have not all started in the same place, and we must now have intervention. Well, the problem with equity is that it is forced equality. Someone must suffer so someone else can benefit. This is a competing worldview. It's a competing claim, an alternative value, and it will replace our ethic of love. Love will become optional, in fact, even useless, if equity is the greater good. So that is the process of Christian love being removed from the center and over time replaced patiently over many decades. And if we know anything about turning points, we should know that they happen very quickly, right under our noses. One day, everything is what we would consider normal. And then the next day, you're wondering why no one seems to agree with you anymore. And part of that is just getting old. But it's something beyond mere nostalgia. Total equity is our cultural goal. It's what animates the new laws that are being written. It's what is taught at every level of education. Our media assumes it as the highest good. They don't even have to defend it. It's just assumed. So those of us who insist on a Christian understanding of love and service, we will find ourselves on the outside looking in. Love will be an empty word, you see, if it is not accompanied by action. Stories like Jesus washing the disciples' feet, they'll be antiquated, old-fashioned, you can't build a society on that. In these days, we must have change and have it now. But love remains 
our best bet. There will never be perfect equality in any society, even those that have revolutions in the name of equality. There will always be harmful effects of the inequalities of this fallen world. But we believe love is a supreme value because love can transcend them and heal them and lessen them. Well, maybe that's not radical enough or drastic enough. Maybe it's too pessimistic. But I think it's that commitment to love that has seen the progress that we have seen. To take it for granted now and replace it with an entirely different worldview will not end well. And because there has never been absolute equality or even equity, that game will never end. But with love, we have an ultimate good to guide us as we go. If we can love as Christ loved his disciples, well, it will surely benefit all. So as you leave here this evening, what can you leave with? Well, I would ask you to listen for language that would substitute equity for love. Beware of the temptation to substitute one for the other. And second, as a church, we must love better. We can always love better. It must be clear in our daily living that our love for Christ has led us to obey his commandment that we love one another. We must continue to be or grow in our kindness and thoughtfulness and patience and graciousness. And third, keep the faith. Love is the underlying and eternal value that will last. All other substitutes will fail. So we carry on and we pray that the world comes to see that they have been fed a lie, that they can create a better world without Christ than with him. As another pastor once said, it is Christ or chaos. Whenever our, our world rejects the mandate of love, chaos will ensue. But love always wins in the end. It must, because only it is everlasting, because it is completely of God. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This week I was sent a request to pass on to our prayer team. It was for a family who the day before learned that they would be living through a nightmare for really the rest of their lives. Lucia Bremer, an eighth grader in Virginia, was murdered while walking home from school. The perpetrator was a 14-year-old boy, and yes, he has been charged. By all accounts, she was an active, lively, funny, lovely girl, and of course, everyone who knew her is completely devastated in the wake of her death. Visitors to our congregation have some connection to this family, and so they 
told me to be praying for the family, but I've seen that it is now being covered in some national news outlets as well. We always hope to find out why something like this happens, but we're always disappointed with the answer. But I was reminded why we walk our children to school, even though it's only a block away. And I was reminded of real and true evil, that it exists, and that tragedy is not as far removed from us as we would like to believe. You see, sometimes in the life of the church, we talk a lot about sin and forgiveness. Church is the place that you go to confess your sins and receive forgiveness and grow in holiness and hence grow closer to God, all of which are very good things. This practice tends to make us a voluntarily introspective group of people. This practice tends to make us focus on ourselves and how good we are or aren't. We are the people, after all, willing to look deep into our hearts and souls. And we will even nitpick at those small, persistent sins that trouble us. You know, if we're not careful, Christian worship services can be a gathering of the anxious and afraid. Those already committed to seeking God and worry that they aren't good enough. In fact, Christians do what others will not do. We place ourselves at the same level as evildoers because we know that our nature is that we are sinners, and in fact, in light of the holiness of God, we deserve death. We often don't make distinctions between levels of sin. In fact, Christians will always say, well, in the sight of God, all sins are the same. Well, at one level, that is true. We're willing to say that. Now, in the Bible, there are distinctions between certain sins. Some sins merit the death penalty. Some do not. But because we know that pride is wrong, and we're not saved by our good works, we think very little of the good works that we do. But meanwhile, out there, True evil exists. It's real. There are those who have no interest in growing in holiness. Indeed, they have given their lives over to darkness, and they leave a path of devastation in their wake. And so, observing this dichotomy of Christians examining their souls for every sin, not wanting to have one go unnamed, and the evil who care not about the grossest sins, I wonder, what does Christianity have to say about that? If our only message is ever, Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins, well, what does that have to say in the wake of sheer evil? In other words, you know, sometimes we are victims of sin too not just the perpetrator. Well, Jesus dying for the forgiveness of sins is not the only message that we have, even if it's the only one we pretty much ever say. 
It's just that this other side of the coin, it's often neglected as we opt again and again for a message of comfort to anxious Christians. I mean, Christians are who usually show up to church services, so it does make sense that we would tailor messages for them. They're the ones worrying about their sin. They need to hear a comforting message of forgiveness. Why talk about all the bad people out there? We're supposed to focus on all the good people in here trying to do better. Well, Jesus was crucified in between two bandits. The Gospel of John doesn't give some of these details, but in other Gospels, we know more. And thank heavens that he was. For these bandits reveal both sides of this coin. One bandit repents of his evil, and Jesus promises him paradise. The thief on the cross, he is the paradigm for being forgiven, for confessing your sins. We know the other bandit rejects Christ and mocks him, and he chooses his evil way all the way unto death. And I believe the second bandit was judged. I don't believe he will get a second chance. He got what he wanted, and he got what he deserved. We often think that the only reason people do evil things is because they never knew about the good option. They never made the right choice because they didn't know they had a choice. Well, this bandit, he had a choice, and he chose evil. And like all unrepentant evildoers who knew better but pursued evil nonetheless, he was judged. At the cross, both things are happening. The path towards being right with God is offered to those who trust in the person on the cross and the sacrifice that he is making. And the path to judgment, it's there as well. The death of Jesus is a judgment against sin and evil too. It's a testament to the world that the holiness and justice of God demands the death of his innocent son. And to be what is considered controversial these days, God is glorified in both. God is glorified when those who trust in Christ are saved. Because God is the Savior, and he delights in calling his children home. And God is glorified when those who persist in evil get what they want. When their kicking against the rock that is God proves that they are mere mortals and God is their judge. The weaker, fleshier part of me delights in this God who judges. For I always envision myself on the right side of that judgment, of course. And I like it. No, I love it when evil people get what they deserve. When our justice system fails by not punishing the guilty, or when it goes after the innocent, I'm glad that God judges evil. And I love that they have no excuse in God's sight 
for I believe God judges based on what we know. I know that's not right, for just as God desires that all would turn from their evil ways and be saved, I should desire the same. And then I read a headline about another senseless act of violence. And I look at the cross again, and I am reminded that in God's hands, those who pursue evil will always get what they deserve. And those who trust in the man on the cross will not. They will receive grace because he did what we cannot do. He paid the price for our sin so that we can be free. So to the young man who would harm our precious children, to those who would exploit others, to those who prey on the vulnerable, to those who abuse their power, to those who degrade themselves. Be like the bandit who repents and trusts in Jesus Christ and who is now in paradise. For if you are like the other bandit, the cross will stand against you and you will get what you deserve. Amen. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Alleluia, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has defeated the forces of evil that sought to make Adam's fall into sin permanent. He has shown the world that all is not lost. He has demonstrated that death is not the end. He has destroyed the mindset that insists that this world, this life, is a closed system without any prospect of joy or peace 
and not worth our hope. So Christians have always been, and always will be, a people of hope who see the world differently, who are not boxed in by the hopeless philosophies of hedonism. If even death does not get the last word, then we will always be at war against, hedon against hopelessness, which sees the world as a closed system, a system in which death always gets the last word. Alleluia, he is risen. Yes, because the door to the tomb was open, life is open too. Because the tomb was not shut, neither is our world. Because it is possible, in fact, a fact, that Jesus is risen from the dead, we live in the world of the possible too. Do not believe the hopeless when they tell you that all is lost. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, it is not possible that all has been lost. For at the very least, even amid war and poverty and conflict, there is the truth that we are all eternal souls who will all be risen from the dead. Alleluia, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In this hopeless mindset, it can take on many forms. Consider, for example, those who have been concerned about overpopulation for decades now. This is an evil, anti-human fear. There was a time when it was believed that only a billion people could live on Earth, for the Earth was going to be drained dangerously of its resources not enough food or water or fuel. The earth itself was a closed system, and there just wouldn't be enough for everybody. Be fruitful and multiply. Trust in God's provision. Nope. It was all fear, all the time. And that was seven billion people ago. Turns out we've got plenty of food and water, in fact, America throws away about a third of all the food that it makes. Food is the single largest thing in our landfills. So all those worrying about the planet being a closed system that couldn't feed 8 billion people were wrong. In economics, there is the zero-sum game theory. It teaches that the only way that you can get what is yours is to take it from someone else. Imagine the whole world as a cake, and you have your piece, and someone else has their piece, and in order for your piece to get bigger, theirs has to get smaller. It's a closed system in which there are winners and there are losers. And if you win, it's because they lost. In reality, what we have found is that the world is not like a gigantic cake, although I love the idea of thinking of gigantic cakes. Rather, we have found that the size of the cake is always growing, and so my piece of cake can get bigger, and yours can too. And so, like concerns about overpopulation, this zero-sum game theory has proven wrong. Or consider political science. 
There are schools of thought, you know, when it comes to negotiations. Every statesman has a preferred school of negotiating. One of the old school approaches is called brinksmanship. That's when in international affairs, you are not afraid to take things to the very edge, to threaten conflict or violence to get what you want. Rather than partnership or a compromise, brinksmanship sees the world of politics as win or lose. And if I win, it's because you lost. You see, you can see that it's already related to this fear of overpopulation, a scarcity of resources, and a zero-sum game mentality. Brinksmanship envisions this world of a closed system in which the only way to win is if someone else loses. Or, as I know that you are want to do, consider philosophy. The working philosophy of our day, postmodernism, it sees the world as fundamentally hopeless, a gigantic dead end. There is no ultimate truth, you see. There's no meta-narrative that applies to all of us. There is no universal law or meaning or purpose. Life is, in the truest sense, absurd. And since there's nothing beyond it, we live only for today. We create our own meaning and purpose and joy and hope right here and right now, because that is all there is. Death is seen by many as the ultimate closed system. When you're dead, that's it. You had a nice run, 66 good years, nice job, lovely family, an avid gardener. But now you're dead, and it doesn't matter anymore. Move along, the story's over, nothing else to see here. But because the door to the tomb was open, life is open too. Hallelujah, he is risen. Yes, Christians can and should have a very different way of seeing culture, politics, philosophy, and life itself, because we see it from the perspective of the empty tomb. Because we live in the wake of our resurrected Lord, possibilities always exist. It turns out that the world, as I said, can in fact support more than a billion people. And that has had a trickle-down effect on zero-sum economic theories and brinksmanship politics. These are largely theories of the past. The hopelessness, then, of past pessimisms, they have been destroyed. We laugh now at many of the doomsday predictions of the 1970s. Anybody have the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, on their shelf? It sold millions of copies. It predicted the end of the world, I think, in 1989. Well, there are other doomsday scenarios. Anyone in the oil industry ever heard of peak oil? Yeah. Um, what about the ice ages that were predicted? Or dare I say, global warming? Hopelessness won when all of these theories were deeply believed. 
And yet, one by one, these hopeless predictions died quiet deaths. Wouldn't you know, no one even attended their funeral. Like so many of history's victories, they were won in the dead of night. And no one was watching the news. Or maybe the media was just too busy covering today's catastrophes than yesterday's achievements. But death is still seen by many as a closed system. That remains baked into our culture. It is assumed by those who make our films, write the books we read, teach our children, and write our laws. This is all there is, folks. So the mottos of our day are carpe diem, eat, drink, and be merry, and live life to the fullest, all of which is okay. I have no issue with any of those statements, of course. But the long-term effects of understanding yourself as a mere creature is that the basest aspects of your nature and my nature will show their ugly head. For example, Remember I said that postmodernism, it's the operating philosophy of our day. It's assumed by virtually everyone. Well, sort of one of the godfathers of this philosophy, French philosopher Michel Foucault, well, it just came out this week in a news article that in fact for many years, probably decades, he engaged in some of the most heinous moral acts imaginable. If he did it today, he might be canceled. But since he did it 50 years ago, who cares? We've already bought his philosophy. It's already baked in to the culture. In other words, the guy who believed that there was no transcendent truth, that life is all there is, that we are just matter, it turns out he really believed it, and he lived according to his passions, with no concern for anyone else. Eternal judgment, life beyond death, accountability to God and neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself, apparently that didn't matter to him. Life was a closed system, and when he died, he figured it wouldn't matter anyway, because life was pointless and absurd. Well, he was wrong. Life is not a closed system. Our death is not the end. It does matter how we live now. And we can and should look well beyond these numbered years. And do you know how I know that? Because the tomb was empty. Hallelujah, he is risen. It's interesting, isn't it? that even with so much progress in the world, progress that was centuries in the making, largely due to the spread of the gospel across time and continents, there remains so much discontent. That's because we can have all of the progress in the world, low poverty rates, higher life expectancy, cures to diseases, increased wealth, sufficient resources, but if the prevailing view is that death gets the last word, it will drag down every plan we marshal to make this world a better place. Sure, we can cure cancer. 
but it will be offset by a rise in suicide. The gains we make in global peace will be offset by violence in our cities. When our society reaches a tipping point of believing that death has the last word, I will truly be worried because there will be a whole lot of people with nothing to lose. So our work is cut out for us, isn't it? We have a gospel to share, a gospel chock full of good news. Good news that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that our entire existence is not a closed system with a fixed beginning and a definite end. No, the very world in which we live is open. Even death is not the end. And because death is not the end, our lives are full of possibility. We're never without hope. Don't listen to the hopeless. They're hopeless because they think the body of Jesus is still rotting away in some tomb. We know better. Jesus defeated death, and our lives, our world, our hopes are as open as that tomb. Alleluia, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.